So my name is Shannon Griffiths and it's my privilege to be Chief Executive of the British Heart Foundation. My biggest leadership lesson is to do things that bring you joy, that you're passionate about. If you make choices in your career that draw you towards the things that get you passionate, that you absolutely love spending time doing, you won't go far wrong. So hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Charmaine Griffiths, the chief exec of the British Heart Foundation. She took the role in February 2020 and had to throw her 100-day plan out the window pretty quickly as the COVID pandemic hit shortly after. At the peak of the pandemic, the charity was losing a net of £10 million a month, mainly due to the forced closure of its shops. She talks about how she navigated both the professional challenges of that period alongside a frightening personal challenge, as well as her early days fossil hunting, which inspired her to become a scientist, why more investment is needed for UK life sciences, and why working with your competitors can bring huge benefits. But first, let's catch up with the latest leadership and business news of the past couple of weeks. One of the big pieces that MT ran in the last couple of weeks is about the supposed death of the subscription economy, written by Paul Simpson. It's an interesting look at what to make of all the recent negative press around the big subscription players, including HBO, Disney, Amazon, Paramount, Netflix and Spotify. Many investors have been concerned about the fall in subscriber numbers, which to some extent is expected after the pandemic has started to recede and people are getting out and about more frequently. And that coupled with the cost of living crisis is leading people to perhaps pay more attention to these regular but perhaps unnecessary payments. And one point that I found interesting in his piece is that many of the big players can almost subsidise a poor performance on subscribers because they have a larger alternative revenue stream, such as Apple's core businesses technology, Paramount has movies and cinemas, HBO is owned by Warner Discovery, while Amazon has the rest of, well, Amazon, which includes MGM as well as the e-commerce business. Obviously, Disney can spread the risk with revenues from movies, TVs and theme parks. But it's only Netflix and Spotify that only have their streaming revenue, which is why investors are so sensitive to their subscriber numbers. Yes. So a while ago, Netflix posed this idea. There's a phenomenon that I think everyone that's ever had a subscription to Netflix or one of these TV subscriptions is this phenomenon of password sharing. Normally it's with people outside your household. You give them your password and they can log in and essentially watch Netflix for free. Netflix has caught on to this and recently announced that it would be cracking down on this password account sharing by introducing a fee. But this then sparked a sort of mass cancellation of subscriptions. So it's pushed back this crackdown in the US because it launched this fee paying service in Canada and Spain. But that resulted in a lot of people cancelling their subscriptions and as a sort of protest against this measure. So Netflix has now decided to delay the rollback of this fee-paying scheme in the US. According to Netflix, about 100 million households will share their accounts or passwords. And I was reading an article in the FT about this. And according to Morgan Stanley, Netflix could potentially convert 20 to 30% of those 100 million households sharing their accounts to paying members. So Netflix has found itself in a little bit of financial trouble. And I guess this is a way of trying to recoup some of those revenues. But I suppose ever since the dawn of time, since Netflix became a thing, 
people have been sharing their passwords and now something can be done about that and they can make more money from people. But of course, I think it was inevitable that there was going to be an outcry over this. So it's interesting that it decided to delay the rollout of this in the US. It's interesting people are cancelling their membership off the back of that. Mm. I completely see why they think that that's going to mean that they're sort of forcing more money out of mm. people who are then sort of so hooked on their programmes mm. that they must have it themselves. But it's interesting that the original members are also cancelling. I think this is potentially the straw that breaks the camel's back. I, th- I think another point that the article makes that's interesting is that when we talk about the subscription economy, we tend to basically talk about these entertainment streaming mm-hmm. companies because they're so big and we know them mm-hmm. and most people come into contact with them. So the piece cautions against using purely the performance of these streaming services to then look at the wider subscription economy and kind of say it's all not working. Obviously, another massive story has been the major storms in the banking industry. First in the US, there was the demise of Silvergate Bank. And two days later, there was a run on Silicon Valley Bank, which caused it to collapse. And this marked the second largest bank failure in US history. And then Signature Bank followed shortly after, becoming the third largest bank failure in US history. Silicon Valley Bank was particularly significant because nearly half of US venture capital-backed healthcare and tech companies were financed by the bank. And companies such as Airbnb, Cisco, Fitbit, Pinterest and Block have all been clients of the bank in the past. And it was also a well-known source of, sort of private banking, personal credit lines and mortgages for tech entrepreneurs. I had dinner with a chief exec and founder recently who actually used them and said that an investor texted him as the bank run began to warn him. So he and his finance team had to act really quickly to kind of withdraw their funds um, and they managed to do so. But he said he felt bad about it because he thought if everyone stopped pulling their money out, the bank would probably be okay. So he sort of knew as he was doing it that he was contributing to the bank's demise. But obviously he had a greater responsibility to his business. And around the same time as all that was happening here in Europe, after ongoing speculation about the health of Credit Suisse, it was taken over by UBS. And I think all these stories have put the banking industry very much in the spotlight again, as investors look at the results of the US regional banks currently, the sort of deposit flights, and start to question sort of the liquidity of others. I was particularly interested in Management Today's columnist Howard Davies' opinion piece on this topic. Now, Howard is an authority on the banking sector. He is currently the chairman of the NatWest Group, but has also been the Bank of England deputy governor, the first executive chairman of the Financial Services Authority, and the controller of the Audit Commission. And I think his point was that, positively, he thinks that in the UK, the big clearing banks are well capitalised and have strong liquidity. So he's not expecting this sort of storm in the banking industry to spread over to the UK. Although, as he said, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because he's the chairman of (laughs) NatWest Group. But I think there are sort of few signs of these big credit losses so far, probably as a result of the 2008 crash and banks being much more sensible now than, than they were before. It would also be remiss of us not to mention the troubles at CBI, which have been engulfing the body for quite some time now. Ayla, she wrote a piece recently on it asking people what they made of the scandal. Yeah, so I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of the accusations that have been made against the CBI. But just to give a very quick recap, the Confederation of British Industry is 
currently under fire following misconduct allegations against the now-fired Director General Tony Danker, and there are allegations of historical sexual abuse within the company. Which were not related to Danker, I'd just point out, but yeah. Yes, those were not related to Tony Danker. Complaints were made by more than a dozen women who claimed to have been victims of various forms of sexual harassment by senior officials in the organisation. There's also an investigation by law firm Fox Williams, who are looking into claims of cocaine usage at such events. One of the things that we looked at is what can companies learn from the fallout of this scandal. And Jonathan Hemus, who's the managing director and crisis management consultant at Insignia, said that many organisations don't pay enough attention to preventing and planning for behavioural crises from people within their own companies. It's much easier for them to consider and plan for crises that happen to them from third-party outside sources. But it's a lot more uncomfortable for them to consider potential crises that are caused by people on the inside, your own people. He said, without strong governance and a willingness to think the unthinkable, organisations leave themselves open to the most damaging crisis of all. Giving due attention to management misbehaviour as part of risk management is a good starting point, especially if it is twinned with a culture that welcomes whistleblowing and in which no one, however senior, is untouchable. And I think it's very true. It's making sure that everybody in the company knows, no matter how senior you are, behaviour such as this will not be tolerated. There is a lot of fear around employees speaking up about things that have happened to them or things that they've seen, things that they've heard, things things that they've witnessed. It might not have necessarily happened to them, but it's happened to someone they know, they've overheard it or something they've seen at an event. And yeah, it's, it's creating that psychological safety that is often talked about when talking about creating or getting rid of toxic workplace culture and making a better workplace culture for people as we come back to the office and whether we're working at hybrid or working from home. And finally, one of the stories that has been amusing me is this um, sort of fun story from the FT's Alphaville blog, which discovered that the chief exec of an American bedding company that is based in Kentucky had spent $258,000 on travel on the corporate aircraft last year. This is Tempest Seeley's chief exec, Scott L. Thompson. And in the company statement, it says that $199,283 of Thompson's use of the company aircraft was comprised of commuting flights, which is, as they point out, it's quite a specific stipulation Mm. and actually refers to him commuting from his actual home base to the office. So if you think your season pass ticket is expensive, (laughs) spare a thought for uh, Tempest Seeley, who is having to pay that amount of money every year for their chief exec just to commute. And now we'll move on to our interview with Charmaine Griffiths, the Chief Exec of the British Heart Foundation. Charmaine, thanks so much for joining us today on Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. You have one of the biggest jobs in the third sector. Can you give us a sort of potted career history and explain how you came to be the Chief Exec of the British Heart Foundation? Thanks, Kate, and great to be with you. My whole career, in fact, most of my life is about making a difference through health and research. And it started really young. My younger sister was born with a disability and that had a profound impact on me wanting to make a difference for other people. And that combined with just a pure love of science and research has taken me down the most amazing path. So I originally started as a scientist. I did a PhD in neuroscience and a postdoctoral bit of study at University College London, as well as a bit of time in the States and Australia. 
and subsequent to that, I've had the pleasure and privilege of working with some of the world's just best research organisations, whether it be the Wellcome Trust, the Institute of Cancer Research, the Royal Marsden NHS Trust or Brain Research UK, and of course, the British Heart Foundation. So my career was very much started as a scientist and then following opportunities and organisations that really were making a difference for people through undertaking brilliant research and translating that into benefit for people. So ultimately all about saving and improving lives. Brilliant. And so interesting, your career started as a clinician, is that right? It's actually as a basic scientist, so it's an undergrad in biochemistry and a PhD in neuroscience mm-hmm. and, and then a bit of postdoc beyond. And also did an MBA along the way. So I took my first job out of the lab, so I've done some work with the Wellcome Trust and with a couple of other organisations, took my first big job out of the lab into the British Heart Foundation when they were looking for someone at the time to better understand the impact of the research they were funding. So it was a bit of science knowledge and insight, but also the ability to communicate clearly with the impact as well. And I was lucky enough to be at the BHF for over a decade in seven roles, ultimately on the executive board. And in that time, lucky enough to get a scholarship to do an MBA about a decade ago. So in addition to kind of the scientific background, doing that MBA was really transformative for me in my career. It helped me understand more about how organisations work, but more importantly, the importance of people and teams. Fantastic. Okay, great. So you stepped into the role in February 2020, which I think everybody now realises is quite a moment in um, history. Explain what those first few weeks were like and what happened when the pandemic hit and when you realised that was actually going to be a big thing in your sort of your leadership journey. Kate, you're taking me right back. So I remember February 10th, 2020 really well. It's my first day rejoining the BHF. So I've been away for just under five years. So excited and not just a little bit emotional to be returning to the BHF because it's a really special organisation. It's got brilliant people. It's funding not far off half a billion pounds worth of current research today and is a powerhouse for making a difference. A very special, big brain, big hearted organisation. And I remember stepping over the threshold and it being bright and blue skies and the warm welcome from everybody on day one. And of course, none of us knew right then what was to come just weeks later. And the organisation had created this beautiful induction plan for me that kind of laid out the first three to six months And like all good leaders, I kind of had my 100-day plan for, I kind of had a a view of what I wanted to do and would be in listening mode, of course, for the first kind of 100 days. And probably by week two, it was really clear none of that would see the light of day for a very, very long time. So it was, as I'm sure for most people in the world, just an utterly incredible time, such challenges personally and professionally, I think, for everybody. Mm. What I would say in terms of coming back is I always knew, even from the moment when it really became clear the pandemic could be devastating for people in terms of health, for the BHF in terms of its operation, and ultimately for the wider world, that we would be all right as a BHF because my confidence in our people was and still is, if not more so today, super strong. We have the best people. So there are a few things we did, Kate, that I think made the world of difference for us as a BHF in the face of this tsunami that was coming, this pandemic that we could already see in February 2020 was going to be pretty devastating on so many personal and professional levels. And the first is we made some really clear choices about what our priorities would be through the pandemic. We didn't know at that point if it's going to last for weeks or months or years. We knew it'd go long because we've got lots of great scientists in the business and are sort of advising us that 
kind of gave us that counsel. But we chose to do four things. We said we we're going to do everything we could to look after the 7.6 million people with cardiovascular disease who are at particularly high risk. We're going to do everything we could to look after our people. So the BHF has 4,000 staff and 20,000 volunteers across the UK. And we knew it was going to be life altering for all of us. So we're going to look after our people. The third was to protect the pipeline of progress that we fund in our research. So we fund over 1,100 scientists, as I mentioned, not far off half a billion pounds worth of active research across the UK today. And to protect that progress was fundamentally important to us. It's our purpose. Our third priority was to protect that as, as much as we can and the people who are dedicating their careers and their programmes and projects to, to making progress for patients. And the last was to do everything we could to protect our financial sustainability, our ability to power research long term. And like most great crises, those four things came together very quickly. I remember the meeting with the executive team where we were reflecting on just about to close our 700 sites and to enter lockdown. And just confirming very easily and simply, those are the four things we're going to hold on to. And they became our North Star through the crisis. They became the things we looked to as we had to make some decisions, some tough, um, some very easy. And have really, I think, become and still are the core of who we are as a BHF now. Be there for patients, look after our people, protect and fund the world's best research and make sure we've got the financial sustainability to do that long term. Mm -hmm. And I have to say a huge credit to our trustees as well as our team and the people around us, both who've come before the crisis, who've made great decisions that allowed us to have um, the ability to weather the shock in, in the best possible fitness we could. But also our trustees and people around us who maintained confidence and commitment to the BHF. They never wavered when we said we're going to continue to fund research through this period because it's so critical mm. to confidence in in cardiovascular careers and you know so critical to the progress we're going to worry about what that means day to day but we're not going to stop funding new stuff even in the depths of this crisis mm, that's great especially when you have a kind of organizing purpose that everybody is committed to as and that's what you probably get much more with a charity than you would perhaps with the business so you were losing 10 million pounds a month due to your shops being closed talk us through that Kate, my goodness. So no one in all of the business stress testing in the world had ever stress tested the BHF's business model with 700 high street shops and stores across the UK being closed for eight months out of 12 in one year. We stress tested not making much money, but we'd never stress tested in any scenario thinking about a world in which we couldn't trade for eight months out of 12. And that meant despite the best efforts of people uh, negotiating with landlords and suppliers, with our landlords being generous wherever they could, and about us taking some tough choices that we were carrying all of that financial cost and liability for that period. And what that really meant for us as a BHF, that because we couldn't fundraise and we couldn't trade, even with all the benefits that we were able to acquire and the hard work of people to fight for resources, we were losing a net of £10 million a month um, at peak of the pandemic. Just to clarify, that is actually, you were actually losing that money. It wasn't that that was the kind of projection that you would normally receive every month. It was actually, you were actively net losing the money. That was, so it's a, a loss of income. So mm -hmm. we had a 50% reduction of our income in 2021. And in turn, then had to make some tough choices in the business. So we reduced the operating size of the organisation and 
had to make some tough choices about where we focus our impact and say goodbye to some loved and and long-standing colleagues during that process. So of course the impact of halving our income in year was phenomenal and I'm super proud that we were kept our doors open with confidence of trustees and all the fantastic support we had from people fundraising for us to fund new research that was so important for us to maintain confidence in the community and for people to see that cardiovascular research in the UK was protected and their careers were protected because they had smart people with lots of choices in life to keep that pipeline going was absolutely critically important I'm really proud to say today that the kind of passion and ingenuity that people showed even in the face of that kind of closure of our retail estate for eight months out of 12 and the cancellation of much loved fundraising events from the London to Brighton bike ride to the marathon to local events all of them were disrupted but we have recovered fast because we learned how to do things differently our people became really ever more inspired and committed to helping the BHF raise and and invest in research so as as a recovery I could not be prouder of how the BHF has done. Mm, That's fantastic I really like the fact that you kept funding those researchers and I think that's really important whenever we talk about these kind of you know big challenges that businesses face is that it ends up becoming very short-termist organizations can become very short-termist and actually by making sure you kind of focus on the long-term sustainable what's actually important I think that that's a really good lesson for people. I can tell you there has never been more determination to make a difference for patients than there is right now. Mm-hmm. And we need it because um, I, I think everybody listening and everybody in the world will just see how disrupted healthcare treatment is for people. I mean, we've been deeply scared by the devastation in both emergency care for people experiencing heart attacks and strokes. For example, we know that ambulances should reach those people within 18 minutes to stop them or give them the best chance of recovery without life-changing quality of life or indeed, sadly, death. And at peak recently, the disruption to come in, ambulances were taking more than an hour to get to people. And it's that kind of need and as well as the just brilliant science that we're, we're on the cusp of so many big advances at the moment that kind of reaffirms to me the work that the British Heart Foundation is doing has just simply never been more needed. Mm, absolutely. That's yeah, quite shocking statistics. How do you think we can improve that in the future? So we're working closely with the NHS and health services across the four nations to share patient experiences and to look for ways in which we can, of course, recover, as well as keep people well, whilst people are waiting for elective care and treatment, as well as weathering the disruption of emergency care that's happening right now. You know, sadly, it's so predictable that people are having heart attacks and strokes and cardiac arrest, that we know that people right now, as we're speaking, Kate, are experiencing that and their treatment and care is not what we would want it. So we know there's a huge amount of effort and it's absolutely not due to the lack of effort and commitment from healthcare professionals, NHS staff and other. There's just so much that we are required to do to make sure we've got a great workforce that's well equipped and that we've recovered well from the impact of the pandemic overall as a society too. So that's quite a lot to take on as a new chief exec and taking that new job with all your hopes and dreams of what you could achieve and then having that all kind of thrown away with um, the COVID pandemic. What did you do personally to kind of keep yourself level headed and not take that stress on? And, you know, how was your personal experience of, of the pandemic? Having great people around me in work, in our colleagues, in our trustees, in the exec team was absolutely critical to the way that we've navigated the pandemic in which I think we've come out of it stronger and really proud of our journey, even the tough moments. And sometimes we were taking it a day at a time, but we Mm -hmm. got through it together. So that 
for me, the people around me in work are always critically important. Right? I spend a lot of time together. I have huge respect and affection for them as well as admiring their professional gifts in, in work. And I hope we have fun as well as get great work done together. And of course, like I hope most people have brilliant mates and my husband and other people around me made a huge difference. And I'd love to call out some forums or just people across the sector. So I have worked in the charity sector off and on for a couple of decades in different places and in different ways. The level of collaboration we saw during the pandemic was truly inspirational. So it's my pleasure to be part of the Richmond Group, which is a coalition, for example, of charity chief execs across the health and social care sector. And at peak of pandemic, we were meeting weekly to share intelligence, support each other, think about ways in which we could do things better together than apart. And there were many other forums and relationships, contacts that I benefited from personally during that period that truly, I'm sure, will be with me for life and truly were transformational just in the the way that we supported each other and one of the things I I love about that and I hope that we bottle for the long term is that spirit of collaboration we're all trying to do far too much to help save and improve lives with too little and it's only truly by genuinely looking for meaningful partnerships good strategic alliances and in a really low ego and very focused sense focusing on how could we possibly get the best thing done for patients or people together that I think we will get the most done and make the most impact and I truly believe we saw the best of that during the pandemic. I think that's really sort of cheering because I think the charity sector has got a reputation for being incredibly competitive which I think some people find surprising so it's really cheering to hear that and I I think that there's the same in sort of business as well that lots of competitors got together to work out a way forward collectively when you know faced with such a huge Sort of different yeah. thing that was happening. I think that was a that was a good thing. I'm interested, particularly in you know, as a charity chief exec, you are always trying to make sure that everything that you're spending the money on counts and it's going towards the patients, it's going towards the people that you're trying to help. And, and this is something that businesses are facing increasingly with the cost of living crisis, etc. And I think everyone's having to do more with less. And I wonder, as somebody that has been in that sector for a long time, there's probably principles that you've kind of picked up on that that others could learn from. What sort of lessons have you taken from there? So one of my favourite lessons, and I learn it over and over again, is that necessity is the mother of invention. There is always a way to get something done. And there is always usually a better way to get something done. So when you're faced with challenges, what I love about the spirit of small organisations, and I see it every day in the BHF as well, is how on earth are we going to make things better for patients? And that kind of spirit, that ethos, that culture just permeates every bit of decision making and also I hope makes us better at identifying ways in which we can just be ever more effective but I love that. Mm, That's great I'm interested in the fact that as a scientist by background you're now the chief exec and there's often not many scientists at the top it tends to be the sort of managerial class rather than the sort of scientists and certainly within the NHS there's lots of discussion about the kind of clinicians versus the managers and there's a lot of tensions there and stuff I wonder your science background, how that helps you in your job now. Do you think it gives you an advantage running a kind of a medical research charity? So I think that being a scientist, firstly, it's a a great career. I'd advise anyone who's interested in life, and I do some work with speakers for schools, absolutely go for science. The kind of the rigour of science, the discipline of it, the skills and things you learn are just, just phenomenal. I think it equips you for a great career in lots of different ways. I think probably in terms of my current role as chief executive of the BHF having a scientific training I think is 
really valuable. It allows me to engage with the science. And that's one of my favorite bits of the job is getting excited and inspired by the world's best brains, trying to make a difference, trying to take on the next advances in cardiovascular disease, whether that's using AI to predict heart attacks in a way that we could never have dreamt of. Or indeed, we're funding a big program called Cure Heart, which is a £30 million investment funded by the BHF. It was a response to a global call to arms to the cardiovascular community. We said, tell us the biggest ideas you have about how to make a difference. This phenomenal team from Oxford, Harvard and Singapore said, do you know what? We think for the first time in human history, we can cure inherited heart diseases and inherited cardiac conditions. And they have the people, the technology and the moment and time to do it. So I love their ambition and love seeing that, whether at the Big Beat Challenge scale or on seeing new PhD students and fellows come up with their ideas and the things they believe. And I think it's absolutely inspiring. And I think being a scientist allows, certainly it fuels me, it inspires me, but also I think allows me to understand the nature of our business in a more profound way. I also personally love data. I love scientific data. I love retail income data. I love data about our people. So I think that combination, certainly I got from my scientific training about being really comfortable with handling complexity of data, ambiguity, and building kind of experience of working with teams and leading teams has just been, for me, a real joy of my career. Mm. What got you interested in science initially? So I spent most of my youth, Kate, on beaches in the northeast, combing for fossils when I was young, like really young. And then when I was around four, my sister was born with a disability. And that really had a profound impact on me. That changed me as a person and made me want to do things that helped others. And so that combination of head and heart really came together in medical research. So my brain loves absolutely the international challenge of research how it's done, the, the kind of thrill of discovery, as well as, um, you know, the opportunity to get involved in some of the world's biggest and most complex problems. That's absolutely intellectually thrilling to me. And then you combine that with the, the heartfelt want and need profoundly in me to help other people, to help save and improve lives. And to be honest, those, those things come together in research and particularly medical research in a really special way. And it, it makes my job a gift and a privilege. And I'm really proud of what we have in the UK in terms of life sciences and research. I think it's a bit of who we we are as a society across the four nations. I think it makes us special. I think it's something that absolutely needs more investment. And we do our part as the British Heart Foundation and the largest independent funder in the UK and one of the largest in the world. But we need ever more funding to make sure that that research investment actually gets translated into benefits for patients. And also we realise the commercial value of that to us Mm. as a society as well. That's interesting. What do you think needs to change to help boost that? So we genuinely need more investment in UK R&D. The government set some targets for its level of expenditure around that. And we'd like them to to meet those targets. I think it's absolutely essential to making sure we've got robust infrastructure and actually investment in a part of our economy that is truly something to be special of. Life sciences is one of our fantastic strengths as as a country, as a four nations, and we should absolutely be building on it. There's huge benefits in investing in life sciences, not just for health of people, which of course I'm passionate about, but actually generating wealth and commercial advantage too. And as a British Heart Foundation, we're hugely proud to be playing a part in that. What, so what advice do you have for other leaders about how to do the job well now that you've been in the position for what, nearly two years now, three years? 
three years. Nearly three, Nearly Kate. three. Yeah, it's three, Kate. <laughs> Time flies. It, it does. And you know, Kate, I have to tell you this. One of the last things I picked up from the BHF's offices, as we'd already sent everybody home for the first lockdown, and I was walking around eerily this beautiful space that's usually filled with energy and bars and people, and it's empty. I'm walking around collecting my things, knowing that we're going to shut the offices for a probably a very long time who knew how long but a long time mainly and I picked up from our press team's desk the morning's papers it's Wednesday the 18th of March pick them up and I don't know why I picked them up but I put them in my bag and they're, they're bound with that kind of bit of strange plastic that all newspaper bundles are bound with and I'm looking at it now it's still in my loft there's something about that moment that day that is just unbelievable to look back on I think it's what we've all come through as a people personally, as well as professionally. And I think as a sector, I mean, we are still no doubt in the midst of a crisis. It's just now the crisis is more about care and support and how we manage cost of living and social and healthcare challenges at a time of unprecedented need. Mm. I think honestly, I've been so inspired by seeing how the sectors responded to that every day, both during the pandemic and now. And every time I look at this yellowing and fading bundle of newspapers I can't bring myself to open Mm. it reminds me of just how much has changed but how much we've we've done together during that time as well Yeah, absolutely I'm interested in a couple of questions actually specifically around the comms approach that you have one challenge I'm sure you had during the pandemic was when the COVID vaccines were coming out and then there was the kind of discussion about whether they damage people's hearts and in a time when there was so much so much sort of disinformation out there and there's lots of kind of you know, polarised views on that. How did you as a charity kind of, you know, navigate that kind of quite tricky landscape? So the BHF will always be evidence-led in its advice to people. It has been for 62 years and will be forever. It's part of our job is to present the best possible information we have that is produced by others to people with heart and circulatory disease. That's a big part of our purpose. And during the pandemic, some of the centres that we have funded or founded, so my colleague uh, Nilesh, who's our medical director, had established a centre of data science several years ago and headed up by an amazing lady called Professor Kathy Sudlow. That centre actually played a critical role in understanding what the emergent data showed us about the link between having a vaccine and cardiovascular risk. And that Evidence is, of course, changing even now. We're still learning because it was such a a shock and such a big piece of health intervention. We're still learning all the time about how to do things, what happened, what the nature of the connection between various things, both the COVID virus itself and our bodies is. And so that department, that the Centre for BHS Centre for Data Science, played a really important role in providing solid evidence-based data about where there was risk and importantly where there wasn't. For most people, the risk from the COVID virus and the response of antibodies naturally was far greater, as you'll have read, mm. than any vaccine. So our role as a BHF is truly to communicate independently. And our team did a phenomenal job setting up a coronavirus hub. So within weeks, we'd had a COVID hub set up that was visited by over 15 million people across a couple of years, providing every day refreshed information about what how to look after yourself, if your treatment had been delayed, what to think about if you're considering taking the vaccine, to just support and information for people who are either experiencing huge anxiety or financial issues, for example, as many people either lost jobs or were unable to kind of go about their normal lives. You know, I'm really proud when we look back at what we've done 
that how we carried ourselves against those four simple goals that were set so long ago now through the midst of years of challenge and disruption, we've stuck to them. And I think we can, I hope others will agree, really delivered against the things that mattered most for heart patients. Mm, That's really important. And I think the other question I had for you as well is that now the acute crisis of the, you know, the lockdowns has ended and went into this kind of big chronic issue of the care system and what's happened to kind of the healthcare system as a result. Are you finding it harder to get cut through because it's harder to get people to care about a chronic issue than it is, and a, and a kind of co- very complex issue as well, than it is a kind of, mm. that, that kind of acute crisis moment? Mm, a great question. Do you know, we're not finding it harder because for us, the crisis is live. It's here right now as people experience a heart attack in right now in this next hour will not be getting the care and treatment that we would expect. So in terms of both clarity of the scale of urgency we of the situation, as well as the clarity, I hope, with which we communicate it is our business. That's our job to advocate on behalf of the 7.6 million people with cardiovascular disease. The team issued a brilliant report called The Tipping Point that we um, published clear evidence-led data about the real state of affairs and suggested actions and support for those in decision-making roles. And we continue to do that and publish and share data that shows the evidence of how things are for people right now. So for me, and do you know, I say this because my own dad was in that queue for a while. It really scares me to think there are 340,000 people right now in the queue for treatment and care for heart conditions. It's a huge number, a record number, incredible to think of. And for a while, my own dad was in that in 2021, as he was discovered after he became unwell to really need a triple bypass. And he was in that queue for a long time, for eight months. And, you know, I always knew, lost grandfathers and uncles to heart disease. I always knew what we did was personal for me. But living as a family with that anxiety for those months was one of the hardest things we've ever experienced as a family, truly. And that, I know, today is there for 340,000 other families. And it's that kind of urgency that really certainly inspires and powers me, as well as that gratefulness to still have him with us and understanding that research kind of got all that surgery to the point where it's almost routine and just the gratitude to the kind of staff who cared for him and looked after him within the NHS as well. Mm. I just think for me at the moment, the question of have we got so much to do for sure? Are we in crisis? Yes, it's just the nature of the crisis has changed. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I'm I'm glad that he's okay now. And I, I guess that's a very unique challenge as somebody that's running the biggest heart charity in the UK to have to be personally facing that and be on that waiting list as well, particularly when you've got all your contacts and you've got all your kind of knowledge and everything. That must have been incredibly difficult. It was, no doubt. And it took me a while to be able to speak about it with my colleagues because the world of someone I cared about most deeply in the world who was really unwell and then advocating for patients or doing media interviews, talking about the scale of disruption and care. And my father's a really private man. There's no way we would ever use this moment for him or for us as a family. It was but holding the duality of knowing and feeling personally the impact that it was having. And so it brought the numbers on the page to life ever more than the, they ever did before. BHF is always about people for me, the people in our team, the people we're here to serve. There has never been a time in which I acutely felt the numbers on the page feel more to me than they did in that period. And do you know what? The BHF is brilliant, though, both in when I could and finally felt able to kind of share it with them when he was well, actually. It was after his surgery because it was just too emotional and too difficult to share before then. 
they responded beautifully. You'd expect just the, the biggest kindness and empathy and people sharing their experiences too, just phenomenal. But one thing that really touched my heart was my dad after his surgery and it was, you know, in the height of the pandemic and we were all desperately worried about him and desperately worried about him getting COVID and being unwell and all these kind of things. He came home after he actually got scooped up into a cancellation slot, which and it happened very quickly. I was actually in Wales. He was very far away in the UK and I was in Wales in business at the time and, and visiting one of our VHF stores. They're like, he's gone in, he's having surgery in a few hours. It's, it's all happening. And so I travelled to be with him the next day and, and see him when he came out a few days later. And he came home with this beautiful little plastic A4 folder. And in it was packed with VHF booklets. So you've had a triple bypass. So you've got high cholesterol. Here's your heart support group. And as he came home, it was just the most beautiful example of how real the support we give is to, to families. And that happens every day for families and their loved ones. I think him coming home with that bundle truly brought to life for me how important things that we do and are proud to do every day makes such, such a big difference to people. He was holding on to it with his dear life. This was the information and support he was going to read quietly to get through this. And to see it, yeah, to see it as BHF was just super special. Oh, that's a lovely story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's a brilliant mm. way to end it. You know, that great to have that sort of real genuine purpose and be connected to the organisation. Mm. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Oh, pleasure. It's what it's all about, making a difference for people with heart and circulatory disease. So and lovely to see you again, Kate. It's been a while. You too. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.